when someone's alive and they're out there in the world and you're trying to bring them to justice, I mean, it's pretty scary knowing that they have all the money and the power to shut you down at any given moment. So being put behind bars, it's like, okay, I feel safe. That's Michelle Licata. She says she was sexually assaulted by Epstein when she was 14. She's reacting to the huge news today that Ghislaine Maxwell, an alleged co-conspirator and participant in Epstein's sex trafficking and abuse operation, had been arrested. You know, these girls were being hounded by Maxwell and by people, you know, all the time. And so for her to be captured and put into a jail cell, you know, that's like the same thing as when it happened with Epstein. It's like, finally, we feel like we can breathe and we're not constantly looking over our shoulders. It's the day that so many women have been waiting for. That's today on Broken, Pursuing Justice. I'm Tara Palmieri, the new host of Broken. We've been hard at work on our second season, reporting alongside the amazing women who survived Jeffrey Epstein's abuse and are now demanding justice against his co-conspirators. We'll have that season for you on September 16th. But when major news broke this morning, we knew we had to jump on it. Today we announced charges against Ghislaine Maxwell for helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually exploit and abuse multiple minor girls from the period of 1994 through 1997. That's Audrey Strauss, the acting United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. Maxwell has been taken into custody early this morning in New Hampshire and will be presented this afternoon before a magistrate judge in the District of New Hampshire. Since Epstein's death, the thing I have heard over and over from his survivors is, it's not over. There were many people who, like Maxwell, helped and enabled Epstein's abuse. Maxwell has long denied any wrongdoing or even knowledge of Epstein's crimes. And finally, today, the government made the first big announcement since Epstein's suicide last summer. Our reporter, Emily Saul, rushed to Lower Manhattan for the announcement, and she joins us now. Hey, Emily. Hey. So you're still at the SDNY right now, right? Yeah, I'm down by, I'm not specifically in the SDNY, but I am down by the courthouse. And it's surreal to be here during quarantine. It's typically pretty bustling, but everyone's in masks and just weird to be back in the city. What was the briefing like? I've been in that room a million times, but never with so many people wearing masks and so terrified to be crammed into a little room together. And also just people have been waiting so long for this moment. It felt very surreal to be there. And I mean, even the acting U.S. attorney, Audrey Strauss, was obviously excited to be giving a briefing, which you don't hear frequently. Her voice sounded particularly emotional when she talked about certain aspects of the indictment including how instrumental Ghislaine was to Epstein's grooming and recruitment process. Maxwell was among Epstein's closest associates and helped him exploit girls who were as young as 14 years old. It's a big deal to step forward with a case like this. It is. It's a huge deal for them to put together the production of, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's such a big deal that they're willing to literally risk safety to get us in a room to talk about how huge this arrest is. Emily, what happened today? I mean, can you just give me the rundown of Ghislaine's day? 
Yeah, so feds busted down a door in Bradford, New Hampshire, around 8.30 a.m., a little later than they typically do when they do these federal raids. Uh, typically, they like literally rip people out of bed around 6 a.m., so she got a little more sleep, and then dragged to a courthouse somewhere in the district of New Hampshire where she uh, did not actually see a judge, but attended a video conference where she was presented on the charges. Given that she was effectively brought into custody, it is incredibly unlikely that she knew that this arrest was coming today. If she knew that the federal government planned to arrest her, she likely would have either A, fled, or B, orchestrated a surrender with her lawyer so that it would have been less of a, uh, less of a show. I mean, I've got to say, I was really surprised to hear that she was arrested in some small town in New Hampshire. She's got three passports, you know, UK, France. We don't have an extradition treaty with France. So that may have been a safe place. And then you hear all these rumors. Oh, Ghislaine's in Brazil, Paris, pictures floating around of her in Outburger in California. And then to hear that she's been arrested in this sleepy town in New Hampshire, I mean, I was certainly shocked. It was definitely a surprise for me, too. One of the things that we consistently hear about Ghislaine is how worldly she is and about how much travel, just how much she travels and how sort of posh and, I mean, British she is. And so she has no ties in the U.S. She has no family here. The fact that she was just literally hiding a stone's throw from New York for hours in a town that I'd never heard of is shocking to me. You wouldn't think that she'd be living on 156 acres in New Hampshire, which apparently she bought the place in December in cash, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, she was taking a lot of measures. She purchased the property in cash through an LLC that was in no way related to her name. She kept changing accounts for her primary phone number, which she'd registered to the name GMAX. She was opening and closing bank accounts all over the place. I mean, she was even ordering parcels to that property in someone else's name. So she appeared to be doing everything she could to avoid detection. Yeah, you know, I loved what Bill Sweeney, the assistant director of the FBI's field office, said about what it was like to track her down. We've been discreetly keeping tabs on Maxwell's whereabouts as we worked this investigation. And more recently, we learned she had slithered away to a gorgeous property in New Hampshire, continuing to live a life of privilege while her victims live with the trauma inflicted upon them years ago. We moved when we were ready, and Ms. Maxwell was arrested without incident. I was also surprised to read how much money she had because she filed that suit a few months ago saying that Epstein promised to always cover her legal bills and to provide for her financially. And then to see in the detention memo that she might have as much as $20 million, I was kind of surprised to hear that as well. No, absolutely. When she filed the lawsuit against Epstein's estate, saying that he'd promised to always take care of her financially, and now she was, you know, battling back all of these lawsuits from victims, I mean, it made it sound like she was destitute. And we really, we know she had both a professional and personal relationship with Epstein. We know she took care of her properties. But when her father died, he left his family in bankruptcy. He left the companies in bankruptcy. Her siblings have built themselves up somewhat. But other than handling Epstein's properties and allegedly acting as a recruiter of children for him. She didn't, to the best of at the public's knowledge, have another career. So where is this money from? It's definitely very suspicious. Right. And it was in all these different international bank accounts. She'd been traveling back and forth. They said she went to 15 different countries in three years. 
she just sounded like an international woman of mystery, kind of like Epstein. But I wanted to ask you, what exactly were the charges? So Glenn was indicted on six counts. So there are some conspiracy charges. She's charged in count one and count three with conspiracy, first to entice minors to travel to engage in illegal sex acts. So, and then count three, conspiracy to transport minors with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. So a conspiracy charge, all that it takes for someone to engage in a conspiracy charge, like to be charged with conspiracy, is literally to talk to someone about Mm. committing an act. So conspiracy to entice minors could be something like, hey, I saw a really pretty teen at the coffee shop. Like, are you interested in her? Got it. Whereas conspiracy to transport minors could be something like, let's get this girl on this jet so we can go to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. Or here's her phone number, right? That's an overt act, not to get too jargony, but handing Mm -hmm. someone a phone number is very much actively participating in something where conspiracy is, can be as little as you and me talking about engaging in something that's illegal. Um, So this would be like her and Epstein kicking back, having, I don't know, whatever they drank and just deciding that they were going to do this thing or talking about how to do this thing. Right. What about the other counts? So uh, she's also charged with transporting a minor with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. So that's not just talking about it. That's actually doing it. That's getting onto the plane or getting into the car or getting onto the train with the child and bringing them to Epstein. Okay. So tell me more. There were other accounts. I think I saw that there were six. Yeah, so there are two more. And both of those are for perjury, which Mm. she's charged with perjury for lying in depositions where she was under oath and didn't tell the truth about criminal activity that she was accused of engaging in with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that at the end. I was definitely surprised at the perjury count as well. That's a rare one for me. I haven't really seen that before. So do they describe any of the victims in the indictment? So the indictment is pretty bare bones. It charges crimes related to three children between the years of 1994 and 1997. So one minor, minor number one, they described as being 14. And the other minors, they described as being younger than 18. They charged a single offense related to minor number one in New York. And then the other offenses relate to acts that took place in Florida, New Mexico, and uh, inside Ghislaine Maxwell's home in London. Oh, wow. So uh, there were some other events today around the arrest, right? Something in New Hampshire? Yeah. So when someone is arrested on an indictment, the first thing that happens federally is you have something that's called a presentment, which is where you, when you're not in the middle of a pandemic, go before a judge and the judge tells you, these are your rights. And then typically there's some discussion of what will happen for bail or bond. Ghislaine did not appear in person in a courthouse. What happened was basically they had a... (laughs) like a Zoom call with the judge and the prosecutor and Ghislaine calling in from her jail cell and her defense attorney. And then press could call in on the phone and listen in. So unfortunately, we couldn't see anything. One thing interesting that did happen was there were a max number of people allowed on the line. And so I called in early and there was a person who didn't identify themselves, but who had forgotten to mute themselves, who was obviously very distraught, had an accent and kept saying, what the fuck is going on? I don't understand. And then sounded like they were beginning to cry. 
And then a clerk jumped on the line or someone affiliated with the courthouse jumped on the line and sort of very harshly said, everyone, please mute yourselves. And the person muted themselves. What? <laughs> there, a, there do you was think a it was Ghislaine? There was a lot of speculation that that was Ghislaine. But when Ghislaine spoke during the proceeding later, she sounded uh, very different. She was very collected and her voice was much more distant than the person on the call. So I would speculate it was perhaps a victim or, or something like that who was calling in and was new to the process. And unfortunately, a, a private moment was heard by everyone else who was there. I mean, it sounds really dramatic. It, uh, it, was, it was very surprising and uncomfortable. Mm. What did Glaine sound like? I mean, did she speak at all? So she did speak during the proceeding. Uh, she didn't say much. The judge read her her rights and wanted to make sure she could see her and hear her. So she answered very basic questions saying, yes, I can, uh, to can you hear me? And I can see both of you. She sounded very, very calm, very collected. Her voice was a little bit maybe icy. There was an elegance, but also a coldness to it in a way that I found really interesting. You could definitely hear her, sort of her accent and and who she was in her voice. And it was, I mean, for me, it was a big thing to hear her. We've been talking about her for so long. And right. So it was like very matter of fact. There was no tear, didn't sound like she was emotional. No, it, no, correct. She did not sound emotional. She sounded calm, collected, and she answered questions just very succinctly. And as just as one would normally in a serious setting. At one point, you know, she, they're asking her if she suspends rights or not to it, like the rights that she has as a person to to appear literally physically in the courthouse. And she did respond, I do consent, which given the charges leveled in this case, uh, I found to be a poor choice of words. Hmm. Yeah, I do consent, right? It's interesting. Is there any chance that Ghislaine will be released? Uh, it, that's a great question. The federal government is going to fight tooth and nail against her being released. In their letter to the judge, they talked about her three passports, one of which, I mean, she's a citizen of France, a country with which we don't have an extradition treaty. Uh, she has what appears to be an unlimited access to wealth. She literally has no ties here in the U.S. She doesn't have family here. She doesn't have anything. She's already spent the last year living like a fugitive. They think she's an insane flight risk, and they're going to do absolutely everything in their power to keep her behind bars. Alternatively, we have just generally seen that judges are less willing to keep people in custody and detain people. They want as few people as possible in the jails and they don't want them to be in danger. So it'll be a really interesting question for the judge who makes that decision. Could we see more people arrested or new charges? Definitely. So when someone is arrested, there's always a possibility of what they call a superseding indictment, which means basically that there are additional charges or they change the charges or there are fewer charges that they could level against Ghislaine. They could add victims. If something happens, they could take away a victim or they could bring a superseding indictment charging another person who was part of Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking ring and or who abused minor children. Wow. So in addition to the indictment, I understand there was something else that happened today. 
Yeah, so <laughs> some big news day. At the end of the day, there was another lawsuit filed against Epstein's estate and his personal attorney, Darren Indyke. It's a woman named Carolyn Kaufman who says she went to Epstein's Upper East Side mansion in 2010 when she was 17 for a modeling gig and was raped by Epstein after being introduced to a number of people who were at the house, including Prince Andrew. Maxwell herself is not listed as a defendant in the lawsuit, but she is named in the lawsuit. The 17-year-old says that Ghislaine Maxwell took nude photos of her prior to the rape. I find the lawsuit really interesting because we're at a point where the Epstein Victim Compensation Program is well underway in taking claims, where people are can literally anonymously file and there's an arbiter who decides whether or not they get a payout. And so it was a very deliberate decision to file this lawsuit today and to file the lawsuit at all, as opposed to going through the claims program. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes. Thanks so much, Emily. I know it's been a long day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Here's another thing. Glenn Maxwell is being charged with sex crimes, but the sex trafficking unit in the SDNY isn't handling her case. It's the public corruption unit that prosecutes officials and bureaucrats, not pimps. We asked a former violent crimes prosecutor for the SDNY why this unit is taking over the case. That's next on the next special edition of Broken. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. So with all this news breaking, there was one thing that stuck out. Who was bringing the charges? Because the SDNY isn't one department. There are task forces that go after specific types of crime. And usually charges in sex trafficking cases would be brought by what's called the Violent and Organized Crime Unit. But that's not what happened. These charges against Ghislaine Maxwell are being brought by the Public Corruption Unit. That was surprising. So I called Ellie Honig, a former prosecutor who was with the SDNY for eight years. I wanted to understand why the case was being run by the team that usually goes after politicians, bureaucrats, and public officials. The fact that the public corruption unit is not just involved, but running point on this tells me that there has to be some potential 
public corruption angle. And what that means to me is that somebody who has held some public office, some official position, is somehow involved in this. Could it be a foreign official? Yeah, could be. Could be a foreign official. There's been, of course, reporting out there that Prince Andrew has had some involvement, and I know he has reportedly uh, not been as cooperative as he initially promised he would be, and the Southern District has had to play hardball with him. Could be a foreign official, could be a state, federal, you know, city official. Could be a former official, by the way, as well. Prince Andrew, for the record, denies any wrongdoing, as well as any knowledge of Epstein's alleged sex trafficking. I asked Koenig if he thought the focus might be on Alex Acosta, the former U.S. attorney and ex-Trump cabinet official who oversaw Epstein's sweetheart deal in Florida. You know, that one where he only served 13 months for his crimes and was allowed to leave on work release nearly every day for 12 hours? That's a possible angle. It could be, in other words, it could be something relating to the case itself. It could even be relating to officials at the MCC, the federal prison where Epstein was killed. But this would include rank-and-file public employees of whether the Federal Bureau of Prisons, local district attorneys. So, yeah, there could be an examination of Alex Acosta. Now, look, unless Alex Acosta, like, took a suitcase of cash, which seems doubtful to me, I think his role in this will end up be going as complete malpractice and completely buckling to a powerful person. But I don't know about whether it will cross the line into criminality. With Maxwell's arrest, it's looking highly likely that this case could spawn more charges— more cases, dragging in some really powerful people. Our next season is entirely focused on people who have survived Epstein's abuse. These are women who are fighting for justice. It's been an agonizing time. Many of these women were abused by Epstein and some say also by Ghislaine 15, 20, even 25 years ago. And for so long, nothing happened. Maxwell, who several women have said was central to their abuse, never seemed to pay any sort of price. She lived a glamorous life. After Epstein died, Maxwell's the name we heard the most. She's the person that the survivors most wanted to see behind bars. And today, in a stunning acknowledgement of the huge role that the survivors of Epstein's abuse played in Maxwell's arrest, the SDNY addressed the victims directly. Here's Assistant Director Bill Sweeney. There never was, nor shall there be an excuse for the criminal behavior you were subjected to. We know that your quest for justice has been met with great disappointment and that reliving these events is traumatic. I would like to thank you for the trust you placed in our investigative teams as we work to hold the adult perpetrators accountable. For the many victims of other adult perpetrators who may be listening or get word of today's announcement, the example set by the women involved in this investigation has been a powerful one. They persevered against the rich and the connected, and they did so without a badge a gun, or a subpoena, and they stood together. I have no doubt the bravery exhibited by the women in this investigation has empowered others to speak up about the crimes that they have been subjected to. We talked with Michelle Licata, who told us a heartbreaking story last year about her experience with Epstein as a teenager. It affected her entire life since then. So it meant a lot to her to hear the Southern District praise the perseverance of victims like her. Like, I started to tear up because, uh, you know, that's exactly right. That's exactly how it feels, you know. And he used the word villain. <laughs> For Epstein and Maxwell, he used the word villains. And he was absolutely right. You know, we're trying to come out here, play the superheroes, and, you know, trying to catch the villain. I think that it was a, it was a huge win on our part, just one step closer to bringing down 
the whole chain of higher-ups that are all corrupt and that work together. You'll hear much more about that very long, very painful fight for justice on the coming season of Broken. Broken Jeffrey Epstein is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 Productions. Our senior producer is Krista Ripple. Jennifer Siegel is our assistant producer. Emily Saul contributes reporting. Production help from Jack Panyard. Jeannie Montalvo is our engineer, and Casey Holford composed the theme. Parker Henry is our fact checker, and Rachel Doyle edits the show. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. Share your thoughts on Twitter with the hashtag BrokenJeffreyEpstein. Follow me at Tara Palmieri. Follow Julie Brown at JKB Journalist. And you can rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners like you find us. For Broken, I'm Tara Palmieri. <laughs> <laughs>